I'm Yash Pavlik-Slink, and this is Degrees, real talk about planet-saving careers from Environmental Defense Fund. Folks, on January 20th, a whole new era begins. And I believe that every American has a fundamental right to breathe clean air and drink clean water. Fulfilling this basic obligation to all Americans, especially low-income, white, black, brown, and Native American communities, is absolutely necessary. In the run-up to the inauguration, I'm excited to share with you a special two-part series on environmental justice. And here's why it matters to you, listener. Yes, Biden's $2 trillion Build Back Better initiative could mean hundreds of thousands of new planet-saving jobs. But folks, it's bigger than that. If you're already in the sustainability space or if you're trying to break in, an understanding and a commitment to environmental justice is just as important as your grasp on greenhouse gas emissions. To serve in this space means that every technical and strategic and staffing and advocacy choice you make will be influenced by the pursuit of environmental justice. And that, my friends, will set you apart as a genuine environmental leader. Like my guest today, Michelle Romero is National Director of Green for All, which is a nonprofit working at the intersection of race, jobs, and justice. As you'll hear, Michelle came to the fight against climate change through her passion to improve wealth and health in communities of color. And now Michelle is bringing together unlikely coalitions from the right and the left and rural and urban communities to find new solutions for reducing poverty while building a clean energy economy. Our conversation really inspired me, not just because she's amazing, which she is, but because of the opportunities that this new approach brings for people like you seeking purpose-driven careers. And I really hope that this inspires you just as much. Michelle Romero, welcome to Degrees. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Great. Well, let's jump in. I'd like to start by taking a measure of where we're at. You said that we're living under a great eco-divide. What do you mean by that? Yeah, we here in the United States, this first world country, still have a situation where some communities have access to clean air, clean water, beautiful parks, and others don't. And sometimes that division is is separated by something as simple as a freeway, where you go left off the freeway, And you see beautiful trees and small businesses and shops and a university. Uh, I mean, this is literally in Palo Alto, right? You you go left and you get off and you're there at Stanford. Um, Some of the richest houses are there. You think of the Silicon Valley tech giants, you know, living there. And then you go right off that same freeway, okay, separated by nothing but a road. And you have one of the poorest um, communities. And that's kind of, you know, the way things are. Um, Places in East Oakland, for instance, surrounded by busy freeways and highways and heavy pollution from the trucks coming to the port. And just a few zip codes away, you have people with higher life expectancy because they aren't exposed to those same toxins. And so that's what we mean by the eco divide, you know, that we have a situation where some people benefit from a clean environment and some people are the uh, sacrifice zones for the rest of us. And you're right. That's a great visualization. It is one way off the expressway or another. And I think we've probably all experienced that. 
So let's talk about what's at stake. To say that we collectively, whether you're on one side of the freeway or another, are in a critical moment seems laughably obvious. We are experiencing a raging pandemic, a faltering economy, and a climate crisis all converging on us at once. Why is now, right now, this moment in time, so critically important for your work? Well, I think, you know, the COVID pandemic has helped open the eyes of a lot of us who had not seen the stark inequality that we have in this country. We're seeing it in COVID death rates where people of color are more likely to be having the worst effects of COVID or or die from COVID if they contract it. And, you know, part of that stems back to pre-existing conditions and health outcomes. If you're black or brown, for instance, your chances of living in a community with higher rates of pollution and lower quality of air um, are higher. And so what does that mean for rates of asthma, rates of cancer, respiratory illness, and other pollution-related diseases that make you more susceptible in a, in a pandemic like this? And so I think, you know, this year has, has brought a lot of painful events Um, but in a way that I think has exposed the underlying inequality to more of the country that had not seen it before if it wasn't in their own backyard, right? And so this gives us an opportunity, I think, to bring people together around how we build back better, how we build a better future, a fairer economy, um, and a cleaner environment for everyone. The other opportunity, I think, is that, you know, Congress is now poised to spend trillions of dollars having to rebuild our economy, having to put people back to work um, and get us out of this health crisis. And that's an opportunity to drive those investments in clean energy projects, in underserved neighborhoods, in weatherizing homes, in cleaning up transportation so that we can have safe public transportation and clean transportation solutions that connect people to their essential jobs and essential services, you know, we we can begin to create a better future for all. And what are the long-term costs if we fail in this moment? We won't get another opportunity like this. I mean, let me just be clear. We won't be able to spend trillions of dollars putting people back to work in any old industry and then think that we're going to have the trillions of dollars that we need to fight climate change. So how we leverage these dollars to have multiple benefits at the same time, right? Fight poverty, fight pollution, fight the COVID crisis all at the same time. That's going to be really, really important. And so we need policymakers in Congress and we need the new administration to really understand that equity Um, which is the outcome of addressing inequality, is fundamentally core to our success. I want to come back to your work and, and dig a little bit deeper in a moment. But before we do that, if you haven't always been an environmentalist, what was your relationship with the environment as a kid growing up? Growing up, um... You know, one of my memories is just riding our bikes in the streets, honestly. Uh, And it was pavement. I I think a lot about pavement. I actually don't think a lot about spending time at parks, but I didn't think a lot about the environment or climate change growing up. I did think a lot about workers. Uh, My dad and my grandpa and all of my uncles worked for the garbage company. And so we did recycle and we were very aware of our conservation in that sense. 
You know, my grandma always used the butter tubs like many grandmas do, I think, uh, to turn them into salsa jars after they were done and things like that. And when we threw things away, we were conscious of what we were throwing away and how we were throwing it away. But I would say a lot of that had to do more um, with saving money um, than it did saving the planet. And it had to do with how we treated the workers at the other end of our garbage. So it was a real people-centered approach, I think, to it. And so I didn't know <laughs> that we were um, environmentalists or think of myself ever as an environmentalist. And you've talked about your transition from that initial identity and not resonating necessarily with the environmental movement, uh, but then accidentally becoming an environmentalist yourself. Um, and you talk about that transition happening during a moment in Flint, Michigan. Can you take us back to that moment and, and paint a picture of what transformed you? Yeah, I, I took this job at Green for All because I had a mentor in Vien Trong who I really admired, and she was looking for someone to help run campaigns. And I said to her, well, listen, I believe in you, and I know that what you are working on, there must be something greater that I don't see yet. Um, and so I'm going to come and I'm going to work for you. But I don't know, I can't promise you that I will be as passionate about these environmental issues as you. <laughs> Again, because I didn't see myself as an environmentalist and I thought it was something different. Um, but sure enough, she sent me to Flint, Michigan within weeks of starting at Green for All. It was the middle of the Flint water crisis. And we had a chance to just talk with moms who were raising their kids in the middle of this water crisis. And I, it was in that room when I was hearing from African-American mothers. Um, you know, this one uh, woman, Denitra Brown, actually, she talked about her three-year-old son having um, a pee-pee accident. You know, it's potty training age. And she tried to rinse him off in the bathtub. At this point, they knew they couldn't drink the water, but there was no information about actually using it just on your skin, right? Um, lead shouldn't cause any issues on your skin. And so she bathes him in, in the water just to rinse him off real quick. And he starts screaming, mommy, it's hurting, it's burning. Um, and she pulls him out of the water and she sees that his skin is cracking and bleeding. And at the time I had a three-year-old back home and I just, I couldn't imagine, you know, what it's like for that mom every day not to be able to do basic things and to not be able to protect your kid. And um, I realized in that moment that these issues were not just happening to Denitra and her family. They weren't just happening in Flint. And I started recalling things that I had never thought much about, you know, how back home in Richmond, uh, California, just a few years before I ended up in Flint, the local news was explaining that the Chevron oil refinery in the community had uh, exploded and that people should be sheltering in place. Now, we all know what shelter in place means today because of COVID, and we know how much we hate it. Uh, so imagine growing up in a community where um, leaks like that happen so often that they actually have an alarm system in the city to tell you to get inside your homes. And the people in the news that time that I was watching were telling people to find towels or blankets to shove in the cracks of the doors. Richmond, California is also a predominantly low-income Black and Latino community like Flint. It was in that moment that I realized 
it's happening to certain people, um, not everybody, because we devalue certain people's lives, and that has to change. I'm, I'm a little speechless, honestly. Um, your story about about these families and these people that you're meeting it would transform anyone. Um, I I hope it would transform anyone. I also have a, a daughter, and I can't. Ugh, I'm getting a little choked up. I can't even imagine not having the ability to take care of her the way that I need to. Excuse me. Um, so when you when you are motivated to do your work every day, are these the stories that are are getting you excited about the programs that that Green for All is is working on? Thinking about families like Denitra's, thinking about families like, you know, my friends who grew up in Richmond, these are the stories of the people that keep me motivated on the days that it gets hardest. These are the stories of the people who remind me that I can't quit when it gets hard. But I think what inspires me the most is seeing the amazing genius and talent in our same communities um, to show people things like, you know, the Green Right Thettles program in the Central Valley of California, you know, the breadbasket of California where all of our agricultural um, goods come from. This is a rural area where many communities have to travel hours by public bus to reach the nearest government services, the nearest hospital, and so on. And um, my friend Ray Leon, who's the mayor of Huron, started this Green Raiteros program to bring electric vehicles to the community and have electric vehicle rideshare programs where companies like Lyft and Uber don't really operate. <laughs> um, and so they're innovating these solutions and helping connect people who really need rides to reach hospitals for medical appointments to be able to go about their day and do their business and, um, you know, reach educational opportunities and things like that. And transportation is one of those really key resources for socioeconomic upward mobility. And so I get inspired by how the clean energy economy and things like clean transportation can help to solve poverty and pollution. I understand that your team is working on what you're calling the Common Ground Summit that will identify and bring together from both sides of the aisle to to align around climate action. Can you talk a little bit about that initiative? Yeah, so Green for All knew over a year ago that no matter what happened on election day in November 2020, that there was going to be a day after the election in November 2020. We have to be thinking about how we come together, how we can heal the the pain, the frustrations that one side or another is going to have. And so um, we set out to work with liberal and conservative partners and build relationships and build trust pre-election. I'm really proud of the group that we brought together. I'm not ready to share who they are just yet, but um, but we have over the course of many, many months been able to identify common ground on about a dozen different policies. It's everything from, you know, how do we weatherize our homes and buildings and how do we help innovate um, new technologies that we're going to need to save the planet? How do we deploy clean transportation solutions in hard-to-reach areas? That's the kind of work that we're going to be doing 
this year ahead um, and doing it in a way that centers the needs of, you know, the underdogs basically in red states and blue states. I think both parties have not done enough to address the pain that is happening in low-income communities and in communities of color across the country. And this is an opportunity to build a bottoms-up bipartisanship, a new way, a new style of bipartisanship um, that doesn't you know, leave us out. And when you're talking about bringing these groups together, are you saying that they really are agreeing and finding common ground to advance these policies together? Absolutely. I would say when I set out on this work, I was very skeptical. I was very thoughtful about, well, who would we approach to work with? Where might that take us on policy? And I was surprised at every step of the way. I will say we have an awesome group of human beings who just really care about addressing climate emissions and who really care about building a stronger economy. I think that um, they're concerned about things like not being able to maintain the U.S.'s global competitiveness. They're concerned about our national security and what that means when you start having resource scarcity. I'll give you an example, perfect example. On electric vehicles, I think you see the left talking a lot about we electrify everything right now, right? Let's just pick electric, electrify everything, and... um, force all new sales of vehicles, for instance, to be electric and, you know, kind of really um, mandate this change. On the more conservative side, some of the legitimate questions that are coming up are things like, well, where are we mining the materials for these batteries? And what are we going to do when we recycle these batteries? And are those jobs here or are those jobs overseas? There's a need to have a fuller conversation about that and truly from an environmental justice standpoint too. Yeah, what is it like to live in those communities, right, where we're now doing that for this um, seemingly good green cause? And we need to be thoughtful about that now to make sure that we're solving not just the near-term crises, but um, perhaps not creating our next one at the same time. So Michelle, you were recently awarded a $10 million Bezos Earth Fund grant. Tell me about a project that you're excited to be funding because of this grant and maybe an outcome that you're hoping to see as a result. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we are going to be launching this year is a listening tour to offer an opportunity for people across the country to actually weigh in on what's the future economy that they want to see. For us, it's not just about putting people back to work in the old pollution-based economy. It's how we're going to build a cleaner and fairer economy. And so going to places like Appalachia and going to uh, inner cities and going to, you know, port communities and other places, going to farmers and talking to them about like, what do you need to see out of a new green economy, right? How can clean energy solutions help you here? Um, And giving them an opportunity to weigh into that platform. We have to really help more people imagine the future that's possible and how they fit into it. I love empowering people with that freedom. And you have talked about creating not just green jobs for building back better and this new economy that we're all working toward, but green jobs that are actually good economically. Can you give me some specific examples of green jobs that are also good jobs? Yeah. You know, with all the infrastructure money that's going to be uh, 
happening, I hope, right, with the trillions of dollars that we put into projects that can help put people to work. I want to see those tied to fair labor and workforce standards. I want to see those tied to supplier diversity requirements, which just means, you know, a certain part of the projects, a certain amount of the projects have to go to um, contracting opportunities for women, minority, and veteran-owned businesses so that we can really help boost small businesses that have been struggling in this economy as well. Um, uh, There was a great example of this that we did in uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, many years ago when we were recovering from the housing crisis, right, back in 2008, 2009. Um, There was a pilot project that was going to be going around weatherizing homes in Portland, And they're providing financing for low-income communities to actually be able to take advantage of some of these upgrades for their buildings so they can use energy more efficiently, keep money in their pocket, and all of that. We saw this as a, a, a double opportunity where you could, yes, do those things and create strong local jobs. So we help facilitate a community workforce agreement with the city, and this is the kind of thing I think we need to see all across the country with these infrastructure projects. A community workforce agreement that said, okay, you need to prioritize hiring in, um, you know, chronically underemployed communities in this area, and you need to make sure that you're contracting with women and minority-owned businesses. And so we applied some criteria that would help those uh, be more competitive for the projects. And the outcome was amazing. You know, 48% of the jobs from that project went to people of color, and about a quarter of the contracts went to uh, women and minority uh, and veteran-owned businesses. Now, that's in a city that had only 22% people of color. And I just said 48% of the jobs, right? So that's that's what equity is, is um, doubly investing in the people who need the resources that haven't had them for generations. Uh, and that's how we start to get to a more fair economy. So yeah, I think that's the kind of thing we need to see more of. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about bringing in multiple stakeholder groups who may seem at odds with each other under a lot of circumstances and try to align them on policy that benefits both. Can you talk a little bit about how you do that, how you start those conversations? Yeah, Green for All sort of sits at the intersection of the environmental, economic, and racial justice movements. And so uh, much like a biracial or multiracial child, I feel like we kind of have a foot in each um, area and often see gaps in ways to help one side or another understand each other better. And now we're applying that same sort of secret sauce that we've had uh, to uh, political polarization and division. Um, and, you know, a lot of times between the media and the ways that we speak in our different movements, we create an entire language that's not understood and not heard by others. And so they feel very isolated and excluded from that conversation. And if we don't find a way to hold space for understanding without calling people racist, you know, being able to accept that everything about our inequal founding of the country to the government structures and systems have led to situations where people have lived very different lives and experiences and don't know what they don't know. You know, Brene Brown has a great 
um, quote in her book, <laughs> Dare to Lead, about leadership and vulnerability and how vulnerability is really the birthplace of innovation. And to innovate our way out of this polarization, we have to be vulnerable. And that means getting away from our soapboxes and our microphones where we're just shouting at each other about how the other side is wrong and we're right. We, we're we're going to be right about some things. We're probably going to be wrong about some things too or just not aware of some uh, blind spots that we have. And so that's what we try to do with the coalitions that we build, with the partners that we are building on the left and the right, and just have a conversation. We're learning from each other. We're learning from each other how each other speaks about issues, what truly matters to us, and that, frankly, we have a lot more in common than we think. Um, I want to shift a little bit to thinking about your career and, and your sort of view on this very broad space of sustainability, climate change, eco-justice that we're all working in or hoping to work in. One of our conceits on this podcast is that any person in any job can make a positive impact. Would you say that that's true? And if so, what advice would you give to our listeners who are trying to find their place in that in that wide space? Let's see. Any person in any job can make a difference. I think that that's true. I think, though, that not every work environment is right to allow our our gifts and our talents to um, contribute, frankly. I think some, some are going to be more open than others to allowing us to make that kind of impact. But we can't all work on everything, and no single person can solve all of the issues alone. That's for sure. But we all can do something. For instance, with uh, George Floyd and the you know, numerous um, police killings of, of, of black men and black women and indigenous folks and, and other uh, brown folks, I think a lot of people saw that as a, as a wake-up call and an opportunity for them to do better um, and had questions around how do they work on racial justice issues when maybe their career, for instance, is, you know, as a transportation policy uh, planner or a, you know, state agency person or someone in a nonprofit at an environmental organization that doesn't work on racial justice issues. You know, what does that mean um, to contribute to that? And it's just bringing, bringing those values to the work every day. Um, Using the power that you do have to speak up on whatever your area is um, to offer an alternative, to offer a new idea or a question, like to actually say, how is this campaign going to make things better or worse for those communities that are the most impacted and just force the conversation? As we bring this conversation to a close, I would like to ask you a question I'm asking all of our guests. And and that is, if you could have a very personal, just for you, Michelle Romero, board of directors, and this is a group of people that you may or may not know, but it's a group of people that you rely on or look to as you're making big changes or decisions in your career and life. Who are those individuals or those groups that you lean on? Wow. So if I had to think of my own kitchen cabinet, so to speak. Um, I, yes, exactly. <laughs> So if I had to think of my own kitchen cabinet, I would definitely want women of color. They have been some of my rocks um, throughout my professional journey so far and have really challenged me 
in deeply personal ways that have helped me get outside of um, the box I put myself in. You know, women who would just say to me, for instance, if you think you should be in that meeting, just come, right? Like invite yourself, don't wait for permission. I would want in my cabinet people who are brave and daring and who do things that, you know, we're told not to do because they inspire me. They inspire me to be a little bit braver and a little bit bolder. Um, I would also want people who I can be fully honest with people who will accept the Michelle Romero for, you know, all of her worries and things that keep her up at night as well, because those people are really important to have in your circle as you're trying to make change. Um, And I'd want someone funny (laughs) on there too, probably just to keep it humorous at Green For All. um, We value solutions, servant leadership, and soul. And the soul part really, I think, is important to Remember to have fun in this work, to remember to celebrate the wins along the way, to remember that it's okay to have joy even when there is so much suffering and that the suffering isn't going to end quick enough for you to delay your own personal healing and joy. Mm, Yes. Joy and healing and fun fortifies us to work longer and harder for what we really care about. And I so appreciate that you've given yourself and your team and even our listeners permission and encouragement to do just that. Well, that's our time for today. Michelle Romero, thank you for joining me on Degrees. Thanks for having me. Thank you listeners for tuning in to Degrees. We've linked to Michelle Romero's Green for All website in the show notes. Consider this your official invitation to get involved. Tune in for part two of this series on environmental justice next week with my guest, Peggy Shepard, the much-loved godmother of this grassroots movement. If you like what you heard today, share this episode with friends and family and ask them to subscribe. And please point them to our website, degreespodcast.org, where we've posted our favorite sustainability job boards and other sustainability career resources. While you're there, we'd love to hear from you. Email us on our website. Our team reads and answers every single email or send me a direct message on Twitter. I'm at Yesh Says. Degrees is presented by Environmental Defense Fund. Our producers are Rick Valu and Amy Morse. Our executive producer is Christina Mestre. Our production company is Podcast Allies with Elaine Appleton-Grant and Lindsay O'Connor. Our editor is Karen Lowe. Engineering by sound genius Matthew Simonson and theme music by Lake Street Dive. I'm your host, Yash Pavlik Slink. Stay fired up, y'all. Ain't no holding it back. Ain't no running.